prophecies that we see in the New Testament um, at the birth or in the life of Jesus. If you are familiar with the Bible, you may know it's split into two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is everything from creation up until a few hundred years before Jesus. And then the New Testament starts with Jesus and moves forward. And what we see throughout the Bible is that in the Old Testament, there's all these words and prophecies that we call them of people that spoke way back when, before Jesus was born, about Jesus, who he was, when he would be born, and, and all these kinds of things. And, and through this Advent series, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas this year, we're going to be looking at some of these Old Testament words about Jesus that we see again in the New Testament. So before we do that, I want to ask, um, I, I want to pray together. This was like a sick family weekend in the Jordan house. Anybody else feeling the sickness? Heather, you were, you were holding it down over there with that water and drinking. So I think it's going around. Uh, but you know, like I need some extra help this morning because I, I was cleaning up things that I shouldn't have to clean up yesterday instead of preparing for a sermon. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your presence with us. Lord, cover this time Cover this time with your blood, Lord, as we, as we already celebrated, Lord, we thank you that you cover us, and Lord, would you cover these words, and would you translate them to our hearts this morning and speak to us, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn together to, we're going to start in the New Testament prophecy in Matthew chapter 1, all right? So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and as we like to do a lot, would you stand with us as we honor the word of the Lord and read together. The verses will be on the screen up here, um, or you can turn there in your Bible. And we're going to start in verse 18 of Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was, uh, her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is our prophecy this morning. The prophet here is Isaiah, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So you can have your seats. Uh, there again in verse 22 and 23 is our prophecy from the book of Isaiah. So if you would turn back, we're going to now travel back to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. So as you're turning there to Isaiah 7, because we're also going to read that, but I won't make you stand up again. Um, I want to mention, you know, Joel and I were talking about this series, and there's several passages in Isaiah that talk about Jesus coming. And some of them are way more Christmassy than the one I picked. I'll just, I'll just say that from the, from the start here. You've probably heard the one, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, the government will be upon his shoulders. It's in, you know, Handel's Messiah. It's very famous. And, and that one's super straightforward, and, you know, we're looking forward to the coming of the king. Well, 
I didn't choose the most Christmassy one, all right? So, but I was intrigued by this passage, this, this concept of Emmanuel. That's what we're going to be talking about, this prophecy that the virgin would give birth and call him Emmanuel, which means we know God with us. And it's something we, we sang about it this morning. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a, it's a, it's a famous topic at Christmas time, especially in the church as we sing these songs, but this story is a little bit different. It's a little odd, okay? And so, but as I read it, I was drawn into it, and I was, I, I, I just saw a word that the Lord wanted to speak to us this morning. So I hope that you can see that with me and see how this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But before we get there, let me tell you that, let me give you a little setup. There's a map on the screen that Joel used last week. And at this point in the history of God's people in Isaiah's time, the people of God have been separated into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, or in this passage in the NIV, it's referred to as Ephraim sometimes. And the southern kingdom is Judah. Okay? And our story takes place in the southern kingdom, and the king here is King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is a bad dude. Okay? He's not a good king. He's a wicked king. Um, there's stories of him sacrificing um, having human sacrifices and worshiping other gods, not a king that is following the Lord. But we get to this story in Isaiah 7. There's two kings to the north of the southern kingdom of Judah who um, are threatening the southern kingdom. So there's Israel in the north, and their king, whose name we'll read in a second, is Pekah, and Rezin of, of uh, the nation of Aram, or what we know as Syria. They are coming together to, to march south and to take on Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah. And they've already killed 120,000 people in Judah, and they've taken another 200,000 into captivity, and now they're marching on the city of Jerusalem where Ahaz is. So that's where we come into this story, and I want you to follow along with me as we read this um, from, verse, from chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, and I, who knows, I may mess up on a lot of these names, but that's all right. The son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, 
Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So we find, you, you may say, wow, scratching your head, kind of trying to visualize what's going on here. There's a lot of names being thrown around. But what we find is Ahaz is in this place of fear, okay? These two kings are coming to get him. He doesn't know what to do. And so God sends Isaiah to him to deliver this word. Now, this word is a word of assurance. It's a word of hope. He says, it will not take place. It will not happen in verse 7. He says, do not be afraid. In in verse 4, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Isaiah's message is a message of hope. It's okay. Like the Lord's going to take care of you. You don't have to be afraid. He's saying that these kings will soon fall and that the Lord will not allow them to prevail against Jerusalem. But he also has a word of warning. He says in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So Ahaz is in this place of fear. But God has sent Isaiah to speak this word of assurance and hope to him. But as if to say, Isaiah says, okay, you know, maybe you won't take my word for it. Why don't you take God's word for it? He says, ask the Lord for a sign, any sign, any sign at all. How many times have we wanted that? Like we're praying for the Lord's will and it's like, give me a sign, Lord. I think if you've been paying attention to the weather, I think some people in Atlanta have been praying for a sign, like snow in December in Atlanta and not here. I was feeling a little bit, I was feeling a sort of kind of way about that. So maybe this year I'm going to ask for the sign of a white Christmas, Um, but we'll see. But I mean, Ahaz is faced with this choice. Ask the Lord anything and he'll prove it to you that this is his word. And instead, what does Ahaz say? Look Look again in verse 10. Uh, That's Isaiah's offering of a sign. And in verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, Ahaz was pretending to be religious here in order to avoid his actual, in order to hide his unbelief. So Ahaz is quoting a scripture from the Old Testament that says in Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord to the test. But here it doesn't matter because God is asking him to put him to the test. He says, put me to the test and ask for any sign you want. And Ahaz says, no, you know what? Like, I I don't want to put, I I don't want to do that. I'm going to pretend to be religious here to mask my own unbelief. Because if God had given him a sign, he would either have to obey it, which he didn't want to do, or he would just have to come out and say he didn't really believe in God. Ahaz was using religion to hide his unbelief. I don't know if that speaks to you at all. It speaks to me how often I may go about the things of church and the things of God and the religious things, but miss actually encountering God myself. And I find that I'm just going through the motions, but not actually meeting with the Lord. Now, we're missing one piece of information here to know a little bit about what's going on in Ahaz's mind. 
So in 1 Kings 16, this story is recorded, uh, the two kings marching down to Jerusalem, and we learn a little bit more about what Ahaz does. Ahaz, when he hears of the kings coming after him, he decides to make an alliance with an even wickeder king in the north, uh, the king of Assyria. So Assyria was further north. They have this terrible reputation of conquering and enslaving people and killing people. If you remember the story of Jonah, he was sent to the Ninevites. This is the Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So Jonah, you know from that story, it's like he doesn't want to go. He knows their terrible reputation. But Ahaz, in his fear, makes this ungodly partnership with this kingdom to the north because he's afraid. All right, so he's made this partnership, and now Isaiah brings this word to Ahaz and says, look, you don't have to be afraid. You, you have a choice here. You can trust in the Lord, and he will establish your throne. Um, and, and, but if you do not stand firm, as he says, you will not stand at all. So Ahaz is, is, is pushed here to a choice. He can choose the word of the Lord from Isaiah. He can choose to believe that. Or he can choose to believe in, and to trust in his partnership with the king of Assyria. And, and unfortunately here, Ahaz trusted in his partnership with evil rather than the word of the Lord. Okay, So Ahaz makes his choice. He, out of this place of fear, he makes a partnership with evil and trusts in that rather than the word of the Lord. So a Isaiah also understands what Ahaz is doing, and then he follows with this prophecy, okay? I, Ahaz had the chance to be on the right side of this prophecy, but now since he is choosing not to believe, not to ask the Lord to speak, not to ask for a sign, Isaiah comes with the prophecy in verse 13. Let's read it one more time. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So Isaiah says, even though you didn't ask for a sign, you're going to get a sign. Here's the sign. <clears throat> a virgin will give birth, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, and then so on and so forth. The Lord will hold Jerusalem and conquer these two kings, but guess what? That alliance that you made with the king of Assyria, that's actually going to be your downfall. It's going to be the thing that overthrows your house and your people. And I... Um, <clears throat> I want to say a word here just to speak about prophecy, okay? Joel mentioned this last week. Oftentimes, we find prophecy has both a near fulfillment and a future or an ultimate fulfillment, and that's the case with this passage. So there is a near fulfillment to this prophecy, and then the ultimate fulfillment we'll find years later in the life of Jesus. Before we get there, let's look at the near fulfillment. The near fulfillment here is a little bit difficult to know every single detail, too. If you start to do research, you'll find that scholars don't exactly know who Isaiah is referring to in this near fulfillment of this virgin that will give birth. What they do know is that in literature like this at this time, 
that this is most likely a reference to an, a, a girl that is not yet married. Um, they, scholars have a couple of conclusions as to who this might be, but somebody that everyone in this story would know that is not yet married, still a virgin, that would soon be married and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. And before this boy is even old enough to know, or once this boy is old enough to know right from wrong, the prophecy is that these two kings from the north would be overthrown. And so whether that is a girl in the temple courts or some scholars believe that Isaiah's first wife passed away and that he was soon to marry this prophetess and they had a second son and they named him Emmanuel. Nobody really knows the details, but we don't want to get lost in the details this morning. The point is that God is saying that a son is coming among you and and the name will be called Emmanuel, which is very important here. The name Emmanuel meaning God with us to remind us that God is in this situation and that before this boy even reaches the age of 12, that these two kings would be overthrown. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what happened. In 12 years' time from this prophecy, both of those kingdoms were overtaken by the Assyrians and led off into captivity. Jerusalem was taken care of, just like God said, in the battle against the two northern kings. But because of Ahaz's unbelief, Assyria eventually came and took the southern kingdom as well and overthrew the, uh, the throne of Ahaz. So I want us to see this. I want us to see something from this story before we move on to the New Testament. When we are faced with fear, we have a choice. We can believe God or we can form our own partnership or our own plan to deal with that fear. Okay, let me say that again. We can believe God when faced with fear, or we can form our own partnership or our own plan to deal with that fear. Ahaz here trusted in his partnership over the word of the Lord. And it's so interesting here that the name of the child is Emmanuel, because it's a word to Ahaz, God is with you. God says, I am here. You don't have to live out of that fear. I'm in the room, and you don't have to be scared. But Ahaz still lived out of that fear and made his choices based on that. Now, let's look ahead to the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Back in Matthew, if you want to turn back there with us, we're going to look at Matthew and we're going to look at the life of Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And how do we know that? It's because the angel quotes this prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus in Matthew. He quotes the exact reference from Isaiah. But first, before we move to Jesus, I want us to look at the story here. Where does, and this can be a little bit interactive here, okay? If I'm losing anybody, if you're getting tired this morning, I'm asking for an answer here. Where does this prophecy come in the story of Jesus' birth? Anybody? Who does it come to? Joseph, all right? And and when does it come in Joseph's life? In a dream, okay? So Joseph is in this place of fear, okay? He he is living in this fear. He has a fear of humiliation right now because his engaged, they say betrothed in some versions, his, his the woman he's engaged to has just gotten pregnant, and that's not a good thing, right? Okay, so he is, she's supposed to be a virgin. They're supposed to wait until marriage to, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And yet she is 
with child. I'm oh, sorry. That wasn't in the papers. Uh, she is with child, and he is in trouble, okay? They, they can't get to the wedding fast enough to kind of cover things up, you know? Like, they, like, he doesn't know what to do, and he thinks, you know, like, maybe the best option here is to send her away quietly. And in this place of fear, I think it's interesting to note that that's where this prophecy shows itself again, is that it comes to Joseph in this place, and Joseph's, the call is, hey, God is with you. I'm, I'm taking care of this. I'm doing this. You can trust me. And thankfully, thankfully, Joseph trusts the Lord. So as I said, as we move on, the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh who has come into this world of uncertainty and fear and has come to enter into it with us. He comes ultimately, as we already celebrated this morning, to die on the cross and defeat the greatest of all fears, the fear of death, to give us hope that if Christ can indeed be risen, then so can we. And if Christ is for us, as the Bible says, who can be against us? All right? So God's presence in our lives and his victory over death at the cross changes the narrative when fear enters the room. Okay, so now we have this option. We have fear comes at us. We can partner with that fear and try our own way to escape, or we can invite the presence of the Lord to be with us. So in, instead of having to make an ungodly partnership to plan our own escape from fear, we can trust in God's power to see us through our adversity and to overcome our fear. So that's why I feel like this passage, although it's kind of crazy and strange, it is such an Advent passage. It is all about Jesus coming to be with us, Emmanuel, coming into the place of our fears so that we don't have to partner with the problem or partner with evil to make our own escape from those fears. We can invite Jesus into that place. So I want to take us through our four questions that often we end up with as we look at Scripture. The first one is, who is God? And we've already said this, God is Emmanuel. He is with us. I want to just read a couple scriptures to you because this is all throughout scripture, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. We see the story of God being with his people. Isaiah 41.10 says this, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.9 says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And one more in the New Testament in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So emphatically across the story of Scripture, God is with his people. And the ultimate example of this is Jesus coming to earth to be with us. So the next question is, who are we in light of who God is? So if you look back at those verses, we don't have to do it on the screen, but because God is here, we are not alone. Because God is here, 
we can be strong and courageous. Because God is here, we can be certain that nothing can separate us from God and his love for us. This is our identity as children of God. God is with us. So whenever fear arises and adversity comes, Jesus hasn't left us. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's present with us in the midst of it. When we think we're alone in it and no one knows what we're thinking or what's going on inside of us, Jesus certainly does, and he is full of compassion and hope for his children. So the third question, if God is Emmanuel, he is with us, and because of that we are not alone, we can be strong and courageous, what is God saying to me this morning? I look at all, all the stories that we've talked about this morning, the life of Ahaz. Ahaz had this fear of loss, a fear of losing his kingdom, his throne, his people, and probably even his life. And so his ungodly partnership, his answer was joining with the Assyrians when it should have been to stand firm and believe in the Lord. I look at the life of Joseph, and his fear was humiliation of losing face and having a bad reputation. And his option was to send Mary away quietly and, and, and try to save as much face as possible. But instead, he chose to trust God, as the word of the Lord says. And then I, I look and I ask us this morning, what is the fear in our hearts? What is, uh, I'm sure all of us struggle with one or two of these fears. And what is that fear? And what have we partnered with because of the fear in our lives? The solution being Jesus is with us and we need not fear, but we still live in that place of, of making that choice. Do we follow what the fear would lead us to do or do we follow and trust Jesus? In my own life, I'll just be a little bit honest with you this morning. The fear looks like, maybe like Joseph, the fear of humiliation, uh, the fear of looking foolish. All right? I remember even back to being like in elementary and middle school, I had two friends who were like the coolest of the cool in my mind, okay? And I was always putting myself like having to like try to live up to that standard of coolness. I don't know if that's like an actual term or not, but I, but I always was trying and trying and trying to be just like to be on their level. And, and time and time again, I feel like when I tried harder and harder, I, you know, there was more shame and more foolishness. And so I, I remember adopting this little, not adopting, but really clinging to this quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. And the quote is, better to be thought of as a fool and to remain silent than to speak and remove all doubt. And I thought, so it's, it kind of sounds like wisdom, but for me, it was fear. For me, it was fear, and it led me to hide. It led me to not open my mouth and to think that I didn't have good things to say or to think that I could not achieve that level of awesomeness of my friends. And it caused me to not try and take a risk when I didn't know if I would be good at something. You know, like if you're, if you're unsure if you're going to fail at something, it's easier just to not try it, right? So that, it, it led me to do that. It led me to work hard to keep everything together and to stay quiet so no one could point me out. But the solution for me was that Jesus is with me and he loves me completely and he will never put me to shame. And if I, if I can realize that, then I don't have to be afraid of what people might think of me or of looking foolish in front of others. And I want to mention this morning that a word about fear. There's probably 10 more sermons that could be spoken about fear um, that we won't get into this morning. But I want to just point out fear. We often talk about fear as a feeling 
like we were happy, we were sad, we were excited, we were afraid. It's, it's just kind of another feeling. But for, for, for people that believe in Jesus, fear is not just a feeling. Fear is actually a sin. We're commanded in the Bible over a hundred times to fear not. We read some of those this morning. To fear not, to not be afraid. It, it's commanded more often than many of the major sins that we think about um, oftentimes. And, and we don't always think of it that way, but fear is a sin because it is a lack of faith in who God is. All right. In one way, shape, or form, fear is dethroning, dethroning God from his place of ultimate authority and power, from his place of a good father who loves to take care of his children, from his place as the faithful one in our lives who will come through time and time again. In some way, shape, or form, fear is the act of taking God off of that throne and thinking that we understand things better or we have a better way out. Um, and so that's why fear is actually a sin. So what is it for you this morning? I'm going to get close to closing here. What is it for you? What is God speaking to you this morning? I would wager that most of us struggle with some sort of fear, whether it's the fear of failure or disappointing the people close to us, the fear of abandonment or loss or rejection, the fear of humiliation, and there's more. And in our struggle against that fear, we've probably made many partnerships. We've decided to remain quiet. We've decided to be perfectionists. We've decided to never let people down, to never cause any conflict. We may have decided to use other things to numb our fears. Or we may have decided to vigilantly protect all that is dear to us. And the list goes on. Sometimes we may have identified the symptoms of the problem, but have never dealt with the root source, the fear. So what is God saying to us today? Back to that question. And I think we're faced with the same choice Ahaz had. Do we want to hear from God on the matter? Okay, Ahaz was, was faced with this word, and he could have asked for anything. But he chose to be religious in order to avoid God's voice. Some of us are comfortable with our partnerships, too comfortable to face up to the deepest issues. And some of us are happy with the veneer, and we don't want to take a, bit, a, a deeper look. And the first choice this morning is, do you want to hear from God about your fear and about your partnerships? And if the answer is yes, the good news is that just like in Ahaz's situation, he loves to speak when he's invited. Jesus loves to speak to us in our deepest parts and when we're desperate and hungry for him. And the good news is this morning is that we have this Jesus who, when we think about Advent, he has come into our world to enter into our situation with us, to speak with us, to walk with us, to cry with us, to journey with us all through this stuff. That is the meaning of Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us in our place of fear. And he continues to meet people who are hungry and desperate for him. I've never been closer to Jesus, I feel like, than when I've been conscious of my own deep need for him or when I was around those who were hungry and desperate for him themselves. So if we can shred the veneer and come out of our own hiding, whatever things we're hiding from, we get in touch for our need for, with our need for a Savior who enters into that brokenness with us. So what is God saying to you this morning? What fear is he revealing and what are you going to do about it? What unhealthy partnerships have you made with that fear? 
Instead of continuing in that partnership, why don't you ask Jesus to deal with the fear? I want to challenge you this morning. If God is dealing with something in you right now, commit to dealing with it. Deal with it today before you leave as we have time to pray and keep dealing with it on a regular basis because fear is something that takes deep root in our hearts. Like I said, we could keep preaching about fear, but it takes pulling out those deep roots and replacing them with the love of Jesus into those places. I want to leave you with two passages speaking of just that. In 1 John 4, 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And then again in Ephesians 3, 17 through 21, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ever, than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Can someone say amen? Amen. And that's the Christ we serve, the one who wants to come in and put his roots deep into our hearts. Um, So as Steve is going to come here in just a second, and Craig, if you could come and play behind that, we're going to have a chance to respond in prayer. My prayer for you this Advent season is that it wouldn't just be that Jesus came to a pretty little manger scene some 2,000 years ago, but that he comes this season again and again to make his home in your hearts, to let his voice be heard where fear comes that the word of the Lord would come even stronger, okay? Where we're tempted to partner with our fear and make an ungodly partnership that we would choose instead to trust that Jesus is the faithful one and that he has all authority over the issues that come at us. So Steve, would you close us out?